Hello again, this is Jason Tackett. Welcome to another episode of A Father's Instruction. Today we are going to discuss the concept of aesthetics. What is beautiful and how it leads us to a desire after God. I hope you will enjoy this. So the subject today is kind of an obscure one. It's one that we don't normally uh, address, and that is the subject of aesthetics, the subject of beauty. And I want to ultimately get into a text over in Psalm 90 where Moses said, and prayed rather, let the beauty of the Lord be upon us and establish thou the work of our hands. And how important that prayer is to our life. But I want to kind of, in an apologetic way, in a way of giving defense of the scriptures and the God of the scriptures, present God as the only source of beauty in this world. And beauty, it, it has a real existence. The existence of beauty has really kind of confounded me when I started thinking about, about atheist arguments. Uh, I heard someone pray one day when they were praying for the food, um, and they prayed... Uh, Lord, thank you for the food and thank you for making it taste so good. And that prayer affected me because, because we live in a world of true delights and true enjoyments of really good things. And the atheist comes along and they want to claim that there is no God. And the chief argument they have is there's no God because of all the evil and all the ugliness in the world and all the suffering. But, I mean, besides the fact, where did they come up with the concept of evil? What do they do with the existence of beauty? And after all, beauty would be, if evil and things of that nature uh, argue against the existence of God, then beauty must therefore argue for the existence of God. Uh, beauty, after all, is very personal in nature. It's something that answers to our emotions. It's something that answers to our intellect as a, as persons. Um, it it inevitably leads us to a personal God as the ground of its existence. Beauty exists because it exists in God as the first cause and comes forth from God as, as that first cause of all things. And therefore, it has God as its final cause. Beauty leads us to recognize God as the source of all that is beautiful. And so the atheist is in quite a conundrum when they come to this idea of beauty and they 
they must find a way to explain it away and ultimately say that it has no real and absolute existence. And that's why they embrace ideas like like evolutionary aesthetics, this idea that beauty is just an illusion. It's a byproduct of natural selection, uh, which means that humans simply think that things are beautiful because it helped them survive. And those who survived, who had the sense of beauty that helped them survive, they pass that DNA on. And so this sense of beauty is just that illusion of things that helped them survive. And, and they would explain beauty as we see a fertile hill as something that is beautiful because it helps us survive. We see a beautiful woman as a potential mate as beautiful because such a sense would help us survive. And that's how they explain it away. But we all know that when we're talking about the nature of beauty, we find beauty in things that have no consequence upon our ability or its ability to help us survive. We we don't demand in our appreciation of beauty that it keeps us warm or or helps us produce offspring. Beauty is something much greater than that. It it's, it has a real existence outside of our perception. Human beings, you and I, we encounter it in art, we encounter it in nature, and when we do, we know in the depth of our soul that we're touching on something that is greater than us, something sublime, something we might even call divine. And it doesn't have anything to do with with natural selection when we stare at a sunset and we gasp for a second at all the great color schemes that we're looking at beauty or aesthetics is one of the three great branches of philosophy um we discuss metaphysics what is true and we discuss ethics, what is good. Beauty or aesthetics is that question, what is beautiful? And while it is the least discussed of the three categories of human reasoning, which by the way, it's very interesting when you consider the Solomon, one of the right, wisest men to ever live, wrote three books and, and each one developed her uh, focused on one of these three categories, uh, what is true in Ecclesiastes and what is good in the book of Proverbs and what is beautiful in the book of Song of, of, Song of Solomon, or often called the Canticles. But, but it's the least discussed of the three categories of human reasoning, but it's the one that has the greatest impact in our lives. Uh, Lamentations chapter 3 verse 51 tells us our eye affects our heart, what we view, what we look at, what we, what, those things, they affect us. So it has a great impact upon us. We will not 
we're not going to sit around very often and have these large, robust conversations about the nature of truth or the nature of good and evil. And, and, and I'm surprised if anyone has bore through <laughs> the previous uh, podcast where we discussed the nature of those things. Uh, but we will, as a matter of course, we will engage in arts, and we do on, on every day, whether we're talking about the way we rearrange our home to, to, uh, to the kind of cars that we like or, or the way we decorate uh, this or that or, or watching movies, watching, watching television, uh, reading books. We're all engaging, even cooking and things like that. We're engaging in different forms of aesthetics. And when we're exposed to those forms of arts music images so on and so forth we rarely think of the fact that they display a philosophy they speak of some concept of truth and some concept of morality even the beauty we find in nature speaks of truth and goodness which points back to the person of God, the creator, the grand artist of all things, the source, as said in or by Augustine, the source of all beauty. So what is beauty? Now, starting philosophically, I guess we could start with Plato. Plato discussed the concepts of beauty um, as shadows of physical existence that reflect the glory of their eternal forms, um, we think of we think of Plato's cave there, that his infamous cave that he spoke of, where where the the people can see the shadows on the cave wall, but they had actual forms that they represent. Uh, the more closely something corresponds to its ideal, according to Plato, the more beautiful it would be. And while we as Christians, we, we would disagree with a lot of what Plato said and how he viewed the world, we can agree wholeheartedly with the idea that something is beautiful if it corresponds to what it was divinely intended to be. And ugliness, on the other hand, is the result of things not being what God intended or does not conform to what his will is for that thing. So as with when we're talking about truth, when we're talking about goodness, they have first principles I want to kind of zero in on then what are first principles. If we're going to talk about beauty in the world, what are the first principles? And we begin again with this idea that this these first principles are things that we know intuitively because we are in living in the world that God created. These are revelations, revealed truths in creation that were given to us of God. When discussing truth, we had the law of non-contradiction. When discussing, when discussing 
uh, goodness. We had principles such as obligation. And without those things, we could not meaningfully discuss truth or goodness. And so it is with beauty. There are some, thi- there, there are some things that we need in order to meaningfully talk about aesthetics or talk about beauty. I, so I, I want to just bring up, well, we talked about Plato. I want to talk about Aristotle for a second, and then I want to draw closer to the principles of the Scripture. Aristotle uh, pointed out that, that beauty cannot exist without ideas like proportion, balance, and symmetry. Uh, and symmetry being the kind of balance where identical composite units are found on both sides of an axis. I, I did this experiment with, with a group of seventh graders where I was trying to make this point about the importance of proportion and balance and symmetry. And I would draw an axis and I would, and, and, um, and I would put a face in the middle of it. And I would try my best to draw that face with no proportion, with no symmetry, and with no balance at all. And, and when, and it makes the point as we look at, you know, one eye being really big and, and being so much higher than the other eye and the jawbone being, being uh, somewhat, uh, or being uneven and, 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 and different parts of that, that it makes the point that when we don't see balance, when we don't see symmetry, when we don't see proportion, we don't necessarily, or or we necessarily do not see uh, tangible beauty in those things. And I'm going to add to Aristotle this idea of purposeful design. It is when we see or experience something that is purposefully designed, bearing things like proportion and balance, we say those things are beautiful. And these are universally accepted ideas. Um, when those things are absent, we, we don't find those things compelling. We don't find those things delightful. So let me give an example. No one has ever looked at a disorganized pile of rotting trash and felt the feeling of sublimity or divinity, they didn't get a sense of beauty from it. We were, were repulsed by it. The smell, the stench, the way it looks, it's, it, 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 there's nothing appealing about it. Or for another, for instance, <laughs> um, a child, a three-year-old child, randomly banging on a piano and you're just sitting a few feet away and you can't stop this child and he's just randomly banging on the keys. There's no proportion, there's no symmetry, there's no balance, there's no purposeful design in anything that they're doing. It's just maddening and it's not something you're delighting in. But then a well-trained pianist comes in and they begin to play to, to play something 
something like a concerto, something with timing and measured balance. And we experience something quite different. It's the idea of design that that undergirds everything that we believe is beautiful. It's the same idea that allows us to experience God in nature. It is said that God created all things, but in their initial state they were Genesis 1-2 without form and void. So he created everything out of nothing, but that, that, that everything had no design in it. It was without form and void, as it says in the King James English. But from that point in the six days of creation, what was God doing? He was imprinting design in it. He was bringing in proportion and balance. He was making separations and divisions and inserting vast amounts of coherent information into creation. And it is no wonder that scientists can look upward in their telescope, they can look downward in their microscope, and they can gasp at the beauty of the things that they're looking at. The microbiologist can study genetics, study DNA, and they can say, this is beautiful. The mathematician can study, study the equations, the balanced equations they find in nature, and they, can, and they can boast about how beautiful it is. There is no song that is enjoyed that is not written by someone, though. And there is no art that has ever been pondered or perceived or thought of it that is not conceived and brought to life by an artist. Every house that is builded is builded by some person in the book of Hebrews. But yet the atheist would have us see a sunset or have us view the beauty of nature and have no one to thank. They would have us see beauty without being able to engage it with our minds and ponder its meaning. Thus they destroy beauty as a concept and they decapitate you and I who are viewing the beauty from engaging in it. And engaging in discovery reminds me of Romans 1.21 where it says of sinful men, Neither were they thankful. So when it is all said and done, when we behold a sunset over an ocean or an alabaster field, we can stand in awe because we are staring at created order, purposeful design. When in, in all reality, we're staring at something that is morally good, metaphysically true. When God completed his work, he beheld it, and he said, it is very good. And that is the essence of beauty. This appreciation of beauty and specified design is and always has been spoke un, the unspoken, implied truth behind, behind our declaration of God. Uh, we could talk about the tele 
teleological arguments for the existence of God and classic. My favorite is really William Paley and his and his uh, and his answer to David Hume's argument of about randomness being able to produce uh, apparent design. You see, the atheist is always needing to only say beauty is only apparent or design is only apparent. Um, that's that's why they've they've unscientifically began to speak of infinite multiverses and in an infinite universe or something to to allow for enough time or allow for enough randomness in in reality to give the appearance of design but william paley answered David Hume, and of course they teach that backwards in philosophy classes in college. They say that Hume destroyed Paley's argument, but really Paley came after, and he was answering Hume with this idea of specified complexity. And basically, William Paley told the story of the watchmaker about this man who was walking, and he uh, he was he walking in the woods and he found this watch and he examined this watch the face of the watch took the back off of it and looked at all the specified complexity it was created with purposeful design or he said the specificity of mechanics that he found there in the watch demanded the existence of the watchmaker the watch proved the existence of the watchmaker. So if we found a watch in the woods, we would be justified in believing it had a designer. Therefore, it is foolish to believe that the nature around the watch, which Paley argued was more specified, had a greater specificity of mechanics, that that did not also have a designer. Beauty leads us to the recognition and the worship of the great God. And that's ultimately why we can create art and enjoy art. We can see beauty in our labor because we are created in his image with the ability to do those things. And we ourselves can immerse ourselves in those things and delight in those things. We cannot really talk about beauty without kind of talking about some misconceptions. There are some misconceptions in our culture about beauty, and I want to just give three real quick. Um, the first misconception is this idea that beauty is purely subjective. We have all heard that saying, beauty is in the eyes of the beholder. Well, that's a false concept of beauty. It, it, it is, and the, and the idea there is there is no objective beauty. It's all just what the beholder, it's what the subject finds to be beautiful that is beautiful. But it's a false concept. It claims the right to define what is beautiful to the beholder. It, it is built on David Hume's false notion that beauty is 
simply a matter of personal taste, just like he was saying, said about ethics. It's just a, simply a matter of personal taste or preference. It, it, he assumed that since there are differing preferences, like I, like I may like one kind of music and someone else may like something else, that because there are differing preferences, like I like Italian food and some people like Mexican, um, those differing preferences means to him that beauty was all subjective. But it ignores the fact the basic first principle that tells us we all find beauty and order in design. It's one person may prefer jazz, another person may prefer a symphony, but what are they enjoying? They're enjoying design and order in some sense. That is the universal objective truth of beauty. The beholder will always find beauty in specified order. That leads us to a second misconception, an even more egregious error uh, that has led to much wickedness. If beauty is subjective, as Hume and many others in the world wants to tell us, then beauty is something that is separate from truth and goodness. Kant, Immanuel Kant, agreed with Hume about this, about the subjectivity of beauty, but he went on to teach that beauty was distinct from reason. It does not have to be reasonable. It does not have to, to have purposeful design in it in order for us to enjoy it. And that led to this existentialism of uh, men like Kierkegaard, that beauty is something that is experienced, and the experience of beauty is divorced or cut off from any concept of truth and any concept of right and wrong or ethics. Therefore, what they believed was what is beautiful is whatever makes us feel good, whatever delights our flesh, and we can delight in just about anything. For instance, a pig... <laughs> may enjoy slop, but that doesn't make the slop beautiful. What delights the flesh and the eyes, that which fulfills the appetite for a second, is often that which has no objective beauty. Men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. In John 3.19, when we divorce beauty from objective truth and moral goodness and allow it to be defined as whatever delights or fulfills the appetite, we give credence to the idea that whatever someone is, experiences is in and of itself to be celebrated. We have, for instance, the modern absurdity of complete sexual freedom with all of its 
perverseness and violence and demeaning nature and extreme outlets all being depicted under a big rainbow, a symbol of beauty. Now, there's some things that are happening that are not beautiful at all. Oscar Wilde taught a generation of people that beauty is to be enjoyed for the sake of beauty itself, and that's the same thought. But what then of truth? What then of goodness? Augustine rightly taught us that something is not to be enjoyed simply because it delights us, but it is to be enjoyed because it is objectively beautiful. Our sense of beauty needs to be trained to find delight only in that which is good. We all know that higher forms of beauty often have to be learned and acquired before they can be truly appreciated. I was talking last time about reading books from Dostoevsky, my, by far my favorite author. But it, were, it was hard to read. I had to force myself. But when I got to the end of whatever book it was, I was, I was even more delighted um, you sometimes your ear has to be trained to enjoy the deeper kinds of music for instance the beauty of literature or and even the higher beauty of spiritual meditation can only be appreciated after self discipline augustine further taught that what is beautiful is also what is true and good, which finds support from the scriptural principles. If it is a lie, it's ugly. If it is not morally good, it cannot contain beauty. Sin cannot be beautiful. There's nothing beautiful about sin. There's nothing beautiful about anger and hatred and malice. And that is all... True. And we know it's true when we're confronted with the ugliness of sin against us. That leads to one last misconception before I get to the prayer of Moses. And that's this idea that beauty can exist in mere form. Beauty is not and cannot be one-dimensional. It must expend, extend, ah, I can't talk. It must expand to the spiritual dimensions of truth and goodness. Consider the statement of scriptures that a fair woman that is without discretion is like a jewel of gold in a swine's snout. That's Proverbs 11:22. That's this idea, okay, you have this beautiful woman, but she is immoral. And that's like a jewel of gold, a gold ring and a pig's nose. An outward veneer of prettiness does not make anyone beautiful. You could meet a pretty woman that is filled with bitterness and anger and intemperance 
and it can be one of the most ugly experiences that you can have. And just so we balance it out, a woman can meet a handsome man, one that may be on the cover of some of some uh, novel or something like that, with long, wavy hair and muscular. Uh, but a handsome man filled with anger and cruelty can leave one feeling a great disgust. I think of the fact that our country, our culture is obsessed with how things look outwardly. People flood into the into the social media sites and and they're obsessed with people seeing this wonderful image of them whether or not they it's true we're obsessed with it we're obsessed with looking good outwardly and they do not realize that unless they embrace truth and holiness they will never possess real beauty i think of oscar wilde's tale a picture of dorian gray the story tells of a seemingly beautiful man, young man, who has the beauty of his youth captured in a picture. And he wishes, as he's looking at that picture, that he could always remain beautiful and only the picture change. And his wish comes true. And he is horrified as the picture changes to show the ugliness of every immoral act. And at the end, he's staring at this picture with blood dripping from its hands and deformed by all these things, and he's horrified by it. But the fact is, the soul of man bears the ugliness of their lies and the deformity of their sins, and no amount of makeup can ever cover it up. No amount of physical augmentation, no amount of, of weight loss or, or anything else can ever cover up the absurdity of our lies or the ugliness of an immoral life. The scriptures tell us a lot about beauty. It clearly teaches that things receive their beauty from God. If things are beautiful, God has made them beautiful in his time. It's a personal attribute. The, the husband in Song of Solomon said, Thou art beautiful, my spouse. It's a trait that can be acquired by anyone. Any of us can be beautiful. Beauty is Related to its fulfillment of purpose. How beautiful are the feet of them that carry the gospel of peace. There's beauty in the spheres as they maintain their purpose. And in the atom and in the cell and various parts uh, of our body as they perform their function. There's beauty in the design of technology. I remember listening to a man once uh, waxing eloquent about the simplicity of his iPhone years ago uh, and how beautiful of a thing that was, he thought. There's beauty in a man or woman who fulfill their purpose before God. The scriptures tell us that beauty finds its perfection in God. 
He calls God in Psalm 50, verse 2, the perfection of beauty. And I love the bridegroom, which is Christ in Song of Solomon, where the bride says he is altogether, altogether, completely and in all parts lovely. He's the universal source and the ultimate expression of beauty. God is, I believe it was Augustine who said, that which can fulfill our longing for beauty. Our longing for beauty in our lives is nothing more than a longing and a thirsting for God who alone can fill that void. Fifthly, beauty is related to goodness in the scriptures. It, it, it's, it's the beauty of holiness in Psalm 69, verse 9, of which we can truly worship. More about that fact as we proceed. But, but beauty is also in the Scripture something that can be lost. It talks about my beauty diminishing like ashes in Psalm 39, 11, because of my sin. Like the picture of Dorian Gray, each act of cruelty and selfishness and sin deforms us. Sin is ugly. But lastly, the Bible teaches us that beauty is something deeper than appearance. The one that was altogether lovely, when he came to this earth, had no beauty in Isaiah 53 verse 2, for which we could desire him. We have all these great, beautiful pictures of Jesus Christ, but there was nothing desirable about his human form, according to Isaiah. And men rejected the most beautiful of all characters because he did not meet their superficial definition of what is beautiful. On the contrary, there are some men that deem to be beautiful and it's only surface. Proverbs 30, verse 30, talks about beauty being vain, but a woman that fears the Lord shall be praised. Consider the works of the words of Christ Himself. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye are like whited sepulchres that appear indeed beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness they looked beautiful outside they had this they had this they had this beautiful outward appearance but they were filled with corruption and that was Matthew 23:27 that leads to this prayer Moses in Psalm 90 says let the beauty of the lord our God, be upon us. That's a prayer for beauty. That's one we should emulate, all of us, that are God's people. We are canvases that long to have God apply the beauty of his person to us. So why this prayer? I, I think of the atheist existentialists of old used to talk about the authentic life. And the only real thing with meaning was the authentic life. 
to such there is no God and therefore no ultimate meaning except the authentic life. That's the fruit of Nietzsche when we talk about will to power and things like that. I don't want to get into the philosophical side. But this idea by acts of will, good or bad, we define our own life. These are damnable philosophies that could not judge between right and wrong. It ultimately couldn't say there was any difference between kindness or cruelty as long as it was authentic. And I think of ideas of, you want to see ugliness, see this played out in movies like Easy Rider or The Clockwork Orange or Natural Born Killers. And I'm not saying you should go watch those movies, but those are just, you see the ugliness of those philosophies. There's ultimately no outworking, no beauty in the outworking of such a philosophy. And I'm not defending that philosophy. But someone once built upon this idea of the authentic life, and they said, life is art. It's that idiom that the Christian can find some semblance of agreement. I love this quote from Thoreau. He said, to affect the quality of a day, that is the highest of arts. It is something to be able to paint a particular picture or to carve a statue or so to make a few objects beautiful, but it is far more glorious to carve and paint the very atmosphere and medium through which we look, which morally we can do. When the scriptures speak of the beauty of holiness as the ground of our worship, it intends that such a work of art should be made out of our lives. Our life was meant to be something beautiful for God, and that's Moses here praying, let the beauty of the Lord be upon us. We are meant to, according to Paul in 2 Corinthians 3, 2 and 3, to be epistles known and read of all men. We are meant to be something that people look at that is more beautiful than if they were reading Shakespeare or Milton or Homer. We are meant, in, according to Paul in 2 Corinthians 2.15, to be a sweet-smelling savor that is sweeter than anything that the art of apothecary could produce. We are meant to be a refresher of souls in Psalm 34, 8 and have men and invite men to come and taste and see that the Lord is good. We are meant to be lovely for our Lord like the Shunammite in, this, in the book Song of Solomon. We were made in Revelation 4, 11 for His pleasure. However, if each and every one of us were honest and had a sense of our sin, we know that there's ugliness in us. We've heard the foolish advice of many, follow your heart. Well, the scriptures say the heart is desperately wicked. Out of the heart proceed, according to Christ, all manner of wickedness in Matthew 15, 18 through 20, inequities. 
That's why Isaiah said, All our righteousness is filthy rags in the sight of God. And we, we always think, well, he must be misquoting that. He meant all of our sins are filthy. No, all our righteousness, the best things about us. When left to our own will and our own desires, we're defiled, we're dirty, we're foolish. And we have the brazen idea that we can take the brush out of the hand of God and make our lives something better by ourselves. No, we pray, Lord, let the beauty of the Lord be upon us. That prayer is so vitally needed because we do abominable works in Psalm 14. We need the prayer of, our, of that text because we need the art brush to be in God's hands. So our life can be what it is supposed to be, a work of art that glorifies our Redeemer and our Creator. We need that prayer because beauty begins with the submission of our will and not the independent exercise of it. But what are we praying for? We're praying for beauty. We're praying that the Lord... The beauty of the Lord would be upon us. We are praying for Him. For something of God to be in our lives. God, after all, is, in Psalm 50, verse 2, the perfection of beauty. The immediate need in our text is mercy and grace, if you read Psalm 90 to its full. There is nothing more beautiful in our experience than to know and to feel the mercy and grace of God. That word beauty can either mean favor or glory. We can read that text, let the favor of the Lord be upon us. The immediate need of grace, grace to cover our sins. Where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. Lord, let that grace be upon me. God could judge our sins by casting us down, but it says he judged his son and gave us the righteousness of his son. This will be the content of our, our eternal song. He loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. How can we not fall before such a God? McLaren, in his, in his notes upon this text, said, God is all fair, but the central and substantial beauty of the divine nature is that it is a stooping nature. If the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us, it will cover our foulness and deformity. This is the cry of a sinner. Let the beauty, the favor of the Lord be upon us, the grace be upon us. But we can also see this as this word beauty as glory. Let the glory of the Lord be upon us. The glory of the holiest of all. Behind the veil in a tabernacle, the Shekinah glory, the chief attribute of God that the angels sung about when they cried, Holy, holy, holy. By thus we're praying, we're asking for God to let his righteousness be upon us. Bottom line, of the prayer is that we want God in our lives.
times. It's a cry of them that desire God. We cannot have his favor without having him. We cannot have his glory without having him. Both his favor and his glory denote his presence, and we want his presence. Like Moses went up into the mountain, and he saw the glory of the Lord, and he came down from that mountain, and his face shone. So we want the presence of God to be upon us. To what end are we praying? And in Psalm 90, he says, And establish thou the work of our hands. We are asking that others may see our works to glorify him. As Christ says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. We are asking him to make our roots good that our fruit may be good. We are asking him to make us a work of art that our works may be seen and bring glory to him. And we pray that our light is Christ and we need him to shine through us. That's our discussion of beauty and I I hope that you got something from this today, our discussion of beauty. And I hope that you will make it your prayer that the beauty of the Lord will be upon you. Lord bless. Until next time.